Well, good morning, everyone. You can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and if you do not have a Bible with you, we will have the scriptures on the screen, um, but 1 Samuel chapter 1. Are you even listening? I am sure that you've thought that before when you've been out with someone and you're pouring your heart out, you're talking to them, you're trying to tell them something that's going on in your life, and you look across the table, and the person is clearly off in outer space, or they're playing on their phone, or they're playing with their food. Now, listening, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I think listening is a gift that we give people. Uh, because to be heard is to be validated. When, when someone gives us their ear, they're saying to us, you matter to me. But we live in a pretty distracted age, don't we? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of distractions out there. So it seems like to be heard nowadays is no longer the norm. It is the exception. Maybe we could uh, all do a little better of meditating upon James chapter 1, verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to get angry. I think that would change a lot of things if people practice that more often. Now, when I think about prayer, I think about listening. It's incredible to me that God has provided a forum for us where he just simply says to us, I'm here to listen. There's not going to be any interruptions. I'm not going to tell you what I think about this. I am just simply going to hear what you have to say. And as you share with me what you are going to tell me, it's in that process that I will work and change your heart. God has two primary means that he uses to change our heart. The first is the scriptures. And this is the place where God speaks to us. But isn't it credible, incredible, that one of the core uh, practices in our faith for us to grow involves simply God listening to us. So as we get into this series, Five Prayers That Matter, this morning, we're going to be looking at prayers in the Bible and, and asking ourselves the question, what kind of things can I say to God in prayer? I don't know if you've ever said this, but I've thought it before. Can I say this to God? Because there's all kinds of things that we deal with that seem taboo or awkward, and so we kind of stuff it, we don't talk to God about it. But as you look at these people that we're going to look at in this series, you're going to see that they bring all manner of things before God, and God listens. He cares about what they have to say. This morning, we're going to begin by looking at a prayer from Hannah. It's a great story. It's relatable, and it really has a lot of principles for us about prayer. So let's pick up with 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll look at the first two verses together. There was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Alakanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And so we pick right up in this story with Hannah's breaking point. When you look at the Bible, infertility is a common theme. 
you look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, and there are many characters who deal with infertility. Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca. You go all, all the way to the New Testament with the coming of Christ, and there's Elizabeth. It's interesting when you look at this theme that one of the primary purposes that God had in these moments of infertility in the scriptures was to demonstrate his power as he was bringing about the coming Messiah. But this morning, we're not going to look at that. We're just going to simply reflect on the fact that for many women in the Bible, this was a source of great pain. Great pain. Now, Elkanah was likely a loving husband. Uh, We'll look at that in the story a little later. He does express love towards his wife. Now, you may be asking the question, well, if he's so loving, then why did he marry the second woman? And uh, that's actually a fair question to be asking. Now, Elkanah grew up in a culture that had placed a high premium on children. In this culture, if you were to be remembered, if your legacy was to continue, you would have children, and of course they would take on your name and they would receive your inheritance, and that was very important because if you didn't have those children, then it was almost like you just ceased to exist. And we don't wrestle with this in the same way. Yes, we, we, we love children and we want children, but we don't look at it quite the way they did. So Hannah and Elkanah were trying to have children, but it just wasn't happening. So he did what any kind of proactive type of person would do in this culture. He marries Peninnah. And of course, that didn't change how he felt about Hannah. It was just logical. It was just getting things done. You know, I've got a solution for this. If there's infertility, the solution is you marry multiple people and you'll get children. Of course, they didn't really take into account the fact that sometimes it was the guy's fault, not the girl's fault, but whatever. So I don't want to labor this point forever this morning, but the idea here as you look at the scriptures and you look at this dynamic, is this is why you do not let culture drive the bus of morality. Culture will always short-circuit God's moral law. It will justify, it will say, oh, you know, I know that God's law says, but if you just take this process, if you circumvent it a little bit, you'll be fine, and everything will work out for you, and and there's a lot of reasons why you must do it this way. Uh, The problem with doing this Okay, so I think Elkanah understood that God's mandate for marriage was between one man and one woman. But I think the problem was, is he didn't realize that to derail that mandate would bring pain into his life, would bring friction into his home. Because God made his moral will with our best interests in mind. And that's what happens. That's what happens in this story. Look at verses 3 through 8, and you'll see the friction So it says, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. 
As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? You don't have to read too far between the lines to start seeing what's going on here. Peninnah is jealous that Hannah has Elkanah's affections. She's probably thinking to herself, well, aren't, aren't I the one giving him all the offspring here? And yet he still seems to love her more than me. And so she turns passive-aggressive towards her co-wife. I mean, you can imagine what this must have looked like at the dinner table. Peninnah says a little too loudly, Oh, good, all you children have been fed. Dear me, there's so many of you around this table. I don't know how I'm going to keep up with all of these children. You know, when God blesses, He blesses. And one of the children speaks up, looking across the table at Hannah. Mommy, why doesn't Miss Hannah have any children? Oh, Miss Hannah... You're right, dear. She doesn't have any children, does she? But doesn't she want any children? Oh, yes. She wants children very much, right, Hannah? And uh, it must be so disappointing that you can't give Elkanah any children, huh? Did I mention, by the way, that I'm pregnant again? Poor Hannah living with the pain of infertility, living with the heartache of someone rubbing it in her face year after year. We, we opened up this message and we asked the question, are you even listening? We've been through that experience before. But now you think about it in terms of pain. And when we have pain enter into our world, sometimes we're even asking the question, is anyone listening? I've been in ministry for some time, and a reoccurring theme happens when I watch people go through pain. They say, I feel so alone. I feel so alone. Whether it's a chronic illness or a chronic pain or losing someone suddenly or infertility like Hannah is dealing with here or job loss or marital strife. Some journeys are just so personal, so specific, so situational that as we experience these things, it is difficult for other people to understand how we are feeling. And then we begin to wonder, is anyone out there? Now, Cana, he's trying to relate. I mean, he's trying to be a sensitive husband. He says a boneheaded thing. He says, am I not more valuable to you than 10 sons? Which, you know, I just recently was having a conversation and the guy was saying to me, you know, that's something you just don't say to your wife. And I think that's a good point here. You don't say that in this moment. Because she's likely to, uh, you know, bite right back at him and say, Cana, don't make this all about yourself here. But she doesn't do that. Hannah's a mature, righteous woman, and she serves as a spiritual guide for us. I love in the scriptures how we see these models of faith like Hannah, and it really begs the question, do you have spiritual guides in your life? Uh, people who model faith to you, who are walking in the faith and demonstrating the depths of the faith. You see, someone like Hannah shows us faith because she's gone through the 
trial of pain, and she's come out the other side, and it's helpful for us to watch how someone else did that. And I think we don't just need biblical models and guides. We also need physical, people that we're in relationship with who can show us how they've walked with Jesus and help us to grow in our faith. So do you have that in your life? And if you don't, maybe that's something to work on and and to find someone that you can really see who has modeled the faith well and is growing. So let's look at Hannah as a guide this morning. And I want to first just ask, what does she show us? Well, she shows us what real prayer looks like. I love these words from Paul Miller. He writes in his book, A Praying Life, that when we come to God, we must take off our spiritual masks. Now, I know right now there's every reason to be wearing masks, but when it comes to prayer with God, we shouldn't wear a mask ever. And it's funny because Prayer that's been modeled to us over the years often actually teaches us to put a mask on before God. It's very kind of like rigid and and formulaic, and it almost makes God seem like God is unapproachable. I've talked to young Christians who have heard other Christians pray, and and sometimes they get really down on themselves and say, I I just, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to pray like that. I wish I could pray like that. And sometimes I want to say to them, Don't start learning to pray like that. Uh, Paul Miller says this. He says, Private personal prayer is one of the last great bastions of legalism. In order to pray, you might need to unlearn the non-personal, non-real praying that you've been taught. So how then should we come to God? Well, Miller says, Come overwhelmed with life. Come with a wandering mind. Come messy. So as we begin looking at different aspects of Hannah's prayer, we're going to first see that she does. She comes messy. Verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Indeed, she's so unraveled that as she's praying in the temple, the priest Eli is watching her and he thinks she's drunk. And and here's like a a pastoral counsel moment for you, if anything, right? Imagine you're walking in a church and, and you're just crying out to God, weeping before the Lord, and the pastor looks across the room and says this to you, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. I'm taking notes from that for my pastoral counseling. That's good stuff. Of course, she's not drunk. Verse 13 tells us that she's praying from the heart. She's showing us that a believer can enjoy a liberty with God. If we were to put it in modern military parlance between a subordinate and an officer, it's sir, permission to speak freely. She's opening up her heart. She's showing us what It's like to bring different things that we deal with before God because we need to bring them before God. Uh, We deal with things like disappointment. God, I thought this was going to turn out differently. I thought that when I went into this job that this was your will for me and that I was just going to keep this as my calling and then you just changed it on me. What is this? I'm disappointed. Or our fears... God, I I know that you say you're going to be with me in this situation, but I don't feel like you're with me right now, and I'm scared. Or even anger. 
In his book, Anger, Gary Chapman shares with us that there are many times where Christians become angry with God. Now, doesn't that just sound a little irreverent? He says in the book, Christians often experience anger towards God in the face of tragedy. It is often true that the stronger one's Christian commitment, the more intense will be the person's anger towards God. Why? Because we think to ourselves, I've been so faithful, God. I've been following you. I've been doing things your way. I've been committing my life to you. Why are you letting this happen to me? When you feel angry over your pain, remember that it's not sinful to feel anger. That God actually demonstrates anger in the Bible. And he's designed us to be like him, right? We're created in his image. And so we express anger as a response. Now, what is it a response to? It's a response to injustice, essentially. When we see that things don't appear to be fair, it causes anger within us. So the Bible doesn't say that anger itself is a sin. The Bible says what you do with your anger could lead you to sin. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and what? Do not sin. So how might we handle anger with God? Well, Chapman suggests three important movements. The first thing he says is that you have to take your anger to God. Sometimes when we're angry with God, we stop talking to God. We either grow internal and we get bitter or we talk to everyone else about what we're mad about, but we are prayerless. As you look at the Psalter, the psalmist teaches us what it is like to bring a complaint before God and how to do that in a reverent way. A reverent way. Secondly, he says, pay attention to where God is speaking. Yes, prayer is about God listening to us, but God also speaks to us, doesn't he? And one of the primary ways, as I said at the beginning, that he does this is through his scriptures. But I think God speaks in many ways to us, whether it's through a Christian friend or a sermon on a Sunday morning or a song that touches our hearts. And so as we're listening to God speak, the only caveat that we have to say to ourselves is, look, if it doesn't line up with what this says, what scripture says, then I know it's not from God. But if he does speak to my situation and it lines up with this, then that's God coming to comfort you. Thirdly, Chapman says that we need to get back on mission. You know, as long as you're alive, God is not through with you. And sometimes we can be tempted to allow pain to derail us from God's purpose for us. So what do we need to do? Well, we take adequate time to heal, and then we get back on mission. And in fact, what ends up happening when you've gone through pain is that you bring a depth of maturity with you as you get back into mission. James tells us, count it all joy when you face trials of various kind. Why? Because ultimately that's going to lead to Christian maturity. It's like God's miracle grow for us. Let's look at another aspect of Hannah's prayer. She acknowledges God's ownership of her situation, and you'll see this in the vow that she makes in verse 11. 
She says, O Lord of hosts. Now, she's addressing God there as the universal creator. It's a term that acknowledges that he rules heaven, but it's also a term that is intimate when she addresses God. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So she says that this son will be devoted to God with a Nazarite vow. He will be specially dedicated to the Lord for all of his life. Now, I suppose you could read verse 11 and say, she's, she's bargaining with God right there. God, if you do this, then I'll do that. And uh, I think we've done that before in our prayer life. Uh, have you bargained with God before? I have. God, if, if you do this, then I'll start giving a little more money at church. I'll make sure that I'm in church more often or that I read my Bible more or that I spend more time with you in prayer, God. Now, is there anything that God needs? Is there anything that he's lacking that I can give to him and kind of help him out a little bit? No, last time I checked, I think God's all set. He's the creator of the universe. He has everything. So it's not about bargaining no, Hannah is acknowledging. She is saying that if she were to receive a son, she knows that this child would come to her as a gift from God. There's an acknowledgement there. And she wouldn't take ownership of this child, but she would recognize that God owns everything because everything that comes to us from God is a gift from God, which shows that he's the owner of all things. And when you think about our children, our children are a gift to God, or from God to us. And one of the hardest aspects of parenting is giving them back to God. Uh, we tend to kind of hold on and say, they're my kids. They're mine. And we try to manage them and put them in our own little boxes. And God says, no, 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 here's the deal. I made them unique and different, and your job is to steward that well to raise them up so that they will become excited about me and live for me and walk with me. As you look at Hannah's words, that's really what she says that she's doing with her son who would come, Samuel. In verse 28, after Samuel is born, I want to read to you a, a translation, the Smith translation. It's a little wooden because it follows the Hebrew, but it really captures the point well. She says, for this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked for him. I also have, now look here, given back what was asked to Yahweh. All the days he lives, he is one that is asked for Yahweh. What a godly prayer to pray that our children would be given back to God for his service. Now, I don't think that as we pray in line with Hannah's prayer that that always means that all of our kids are going into full-time ministry and they'll become monks in temples or something like that. No, I think it means that we're praying that God would take this child and have this child be wholly devoted to him, that there would be some special 
way that this child would serve God with their life. It was a long time before I was born, long before I was born, that my grandmother, my dad's mom, prayed a prayer like this. As she was in a very difficult period of her life, she was very sick, and she thought she was near death. And so in that moment of weakness, she cried out to the Lord and asked for the Lord to heal her. And as she prayed, she also vowed and said, Lord, if you will heal me, I commit to praying regularly for my middle son, that he will grow up to become a pastor. So she prays, she gets better, and for years she doesn't say anything. She just continues to go about keeping this vow between her and God. It's not until my dad has passed his ordination council that she quietly pulled him aside and told him the story. I got to tell you, it was a pretty potent prayer because now today her middle son's middle son is preaching to you. Isn't it incredible how God works through prayer? Finally, Hannah leaves confident that she has been heard. So Eli gets a little bit better with the pastoral council now, and he says to Hannah, Go in peace, Urah, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Now after this time of pouring her heart before the Lord, the text shows us that her countenance changes in verse 18. She says to Eli, let your servant find favor in your eyes, and look here, then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, let me suggest again to you that prayer is God's gift to us, because in praying, he commits to listening. Look at that story again. No one was listening to Hannah, were they? Elkanah is not listening. Eli, not listening. And here's the truth. Often the people that we expect to sympathize with us can let us down. We're coming for comfort, and we're asking them to help us through our pain, and they just end up hurting us more because they don't get it. Have you ever had that happen to you? I mean, you go to a friend, you go to a spouse, you even go to a pastor. And you're looking for comfort and you walk away feeling let down or they just come at you with a, a pat answer like, it'll be okay. Listen, don't be surprised by this because there is only one who can fully understand Everyone else will fall short somewhere in the spectrum of imperfect, but not God. God is the one we can bring our pain to, because God is never too distracted. God's never too busy. He's never too preoccupied with running the universe. No, quite the contrary. The Bible tells us repeatedly that God is near that God is always available, that God is willing to hear our complex issues and our deepest pains and our hurts and our hang-ups. In fact, can I suggest this to you? Can I suggest that God's commitment to listen to you is even better than receiving a yes response for something that you have requested? 
Now, in Hannah's case, yes, she receives a yes. But the Bible says that her countenance changed before she knew the results. Some Bible teachers say, oh, Eli assured her that she'd have a child, but I don't see that in the text. I see a well wish. May God grant you. She receives confirmation later. That's verse 20. So she leaves filled up because she knew God had heard her, that God had cared. Now, as we close this down, we hear a lot about how to deal with our pain and disappointment. Like, uh, you might go to a motivational speaker, and the motivational speaker might say, like, pithy statements like, oh, disappointment is just clothing for opportunity. Or, uh, failure is the back door to success. Or you might go up to dear old dad, and dear old dad says, ah, you know, think about all the things you have and not all the things that you don't have. Or maybe it's a close friend, and the close friend says, don't lose hope. But what does God say? Well, God doesn't tend to say anything because he's listening. God knows that the slogans and formulas and pat answers don't help. We don't want to run out of the room all excited and then only to be disappointed by the pat formula, right? We need someone that gets it. And God gets it because God has experienced real pain. And you know this because God watched his son die on the cross. Isn't it a mystery? That when Jesus was dying on the cross that the heavenly Father poured his wrath upon the Son. The wrath that you deserved and the wrath that I deserved. And for a terrible moment that carried the weight of all of eternity, the Father had turned away from the Son and there was a disconnection in some way. A deep loss of this triune Godhead that had lived in perfect relationship for all of eternity. And why did He do this? He did this for you and for me. You see, what we learn about prayer from Hannah's story is that our deepest pain matters to God. He gets it. And He's willing, He's always willing to listen. So let's go to Him right now in prayer. Father, as we have looked at this story, 1 Samuel chapter 1 this morning, we, we marvel over the gift of prayer. We thank you, God of the universe and heavenly Father, that you would listen to us. Be the perfect listener. The God who is always ready and available and willing. Thank you that our deepest pain matters to you, Lord. That we can bring our disappointments, our broken hearts, our fears, even our anger. And Lord, you care. And in the midst of prayer, you also work to change us. Lord, uh, thank you for our spiritual guides. Thank you for Hannah this morning. And uh, we pray that we'll continue to grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen.